Welcome to episode 95 of Running Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Hudfield, and uh, we have the pleasure today of chatting with one of our three fantastic female marathoners at the Tokyo Olympics, Ellie Pashley. Ellie is a, uh, a physiotherapist and a running coach as well, so she's got some incredible insights into you know, both sides of, of the field, I guess, as an athlete and a uh, practitioner slash coach. Uh, some some great stuff to talk about there. She's also coached by the big moose, Julian Spence. So he's coming with a few listener questions for us to talk about her days prior to being a, uh, shall we say, professional marathon runner. Um, yeah, she's, she's hit the ground running a little bit later than some, always an impressive athlete, but didn't take things too seriously until not too long ago. So she's got a really interesting progression to chat about. Anyway, before we get on, we'll thank our podcast partners, uh, Runella, Goo Energy, Fractal Performance Headwear, Precision Hydration, Raid Light, Gaimir Allied Health Centre, Basecamp Altitude and the Cronulla Beer Co. And we share a couple of beers with Ellie along the way. She was good enough to get stuck into a, uh, a can of the XPA, which uh, I'm sure she enjoyed. Uh, just a quick note to... Get on down to Ranulla for some click and collect action. So if you give the guys a buzz, um, they'll still you know, sell you some stuff. Um, they've got a great range of gear in there. And, and certainly if you mention Running Matters podcast, there's, there's a nice discount there for you. So, yeah, still open and running, Sean and Jen, uh, just doing some click and collect stuff. So please get down and support them. Uh, but, yeah, without further ado, we'll get Ellie on and I'll bring the wolf into the room. Enjoy. Okay. Welcome to the show, Ellie Pashley. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Got you from uh, beautiful sunny Brisbane once again. Enjoying the sunshine up there? Yeah, it's actually overcast today, but um, yeah, I think it's almost nicer when it's not that nice outside because yesterday it was beautiful. It was blue sky and sunshine and it's a bit, uh, it's a bit of a tease when it's like that. So Hard I'm not think. minding the overcast rainy day. Do you, uh, do you have windows to open or is that a luxury? Yeah, no opening windows. We've got a window that, so we look out onto the river and the Story Bridge, which is really nice, but we can't open the window at all. So no fresh air, unfortunately, but um, yeah, at least we've got a view. Last time I did quarantine, I had no view whatsoever. I had a big plastic thing covering my window. So this is, this is much better. Wow, that's fantastic. Luxury. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've spoken, spoken to a couple of the other athletes who've come back from Tokyo. We talked about psychology a little bit. So we spoke to Pat Tiernan the other day, and he was obviously doing a lot of hard thinking about his race. Do you think it's easier trapped in a hotel room for two weeks following a positive race experience? Yeah, definitely. Um, the last time that I did quarantine, I was coming back from London Marathon where I didn't have a very good race. And th- that's pretty tough, actually, because you, yeah, you got two weeks to think about how <laughs> poorly your race went. Um, so definitely, I think coming back from a good experience is, yeah. And even for us, like coming back from the Olympics, it, it sort of feels like it's worth it. As challenging as hotel quarantine is, at least we've been able to go and do something really fun so uh, I think that makes a difference yeah for sure and and so you haven't slowly lost your mind at this point you're uh you're still hanging in there day eight uh <laughs> yeah I've, I wouldn't say that I've uh enjoyed the experience I'm not very good at being locked in a room and not being able to go outside but 
yeah, I mean, I think if anything, it's been a little easier this time just knowing what to expect and you go through some sort of ups and downs emotionally in here. And so I think, yeah, it was a little easier this time going into it, having done it before. Um, but, yeah, this middle patch is a little bit tough because it's sort of feels like we've been in here for quite a long time, but there's still a fair few days to go. So, yeah, I think once we get to a couple of days till we get out, it'll be good. I suppose you'd see some advantages uh, of the forced rest with your recovery after, you know, a tough race. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, I think coming off a marathon, like I'll always have a, sort of a week or so off anyway. I've never had two weeks off. Um, and I think Julian, my coach, was pretty happy with me having two weeks forced rest. But, yeah, I was pretty keen to try and get a treadmill into the room for the second week to start doing some running again. Uh, but, yeah, that's been a bit tricky with this hotel. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I think not moving at all is, is not great after a marathon. I think you do need to do some, some movement and some exercise. Um, so I've got a bike in here now, which has been really nice, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely probably good for our bodies to have a rest from the impact of running. So two weeks forced rest won't, won't kill us. <laughs> it's tough for you guys i know i understand I, I guess we should congratulate you on a on a tremendous campaign in tokyo 23rd in a time of 233 uh it brings us to our first listener question from ian richards who would like you to give us a little bit of a play-by-play -play of the carnage you must have been running through in the last 10 k's yeah it was it was pretty crazy so um the heat obviously in sapporo I think the day of our race it was around 30 degrees and high humidity so we we knew that it was going to be like that in the second half I think the women's race people actually went out a little more conservatively than they did the next day in the men's so there probably wasn't as much carnage as I was expecting to be honest but uh, from about 18k I saw the first um was the first person that I saw that was collapsed on the side of the road so that was quite early in the race and and that that just continued on there were people walking lying down on the on the road in the middle of the course or off to the side of the road um medics treating people and putting them into wheelchairs so yeah particularly on that last lap I think the temperature increased as well as it got a bit later and there was there were a lot of uh fairly scary sights I would say it's not just people slowing down because they're tired it was yeah on the ground and not in a good way so um saw a fair bit of that but I think in the women's race there were maybe only 17 or so DNFs which actually was less than than I was expecting they um they the day before they changed the race time to start at six as opposed to seven o'clock was that um, to your advantage? I guess it was to, you know, combat the, the conditions and the heat. Um, do you, how did that work for you? Yeah, I think, I think that was a really good decision from a safety perspective because the conditions on the day of our race were looking really terrible in the lead-in. So I certainly think that was the right thing to do and the safe thing to do. Uh, probably in my case, I'd done a huge amount of heat preparation uh, so acclimatization stuff as well as pre-cooling before the race so if anything I think it almost would have been an advantage to 
myself and the other Australian girls if it started a little later. But, yeah, like I said, I, I don't think that would have been safe and I think there would have been a lot more uh, medical issues mm. with people out on course. So, yeah. And, I mean, it, yeah, it was it was really hot at the end, but um, I think we'd done all the prep for it. So I think we still would have been okay even if it was an hour later, but I'm not sure that it would have been the same case for everyone. Yeah, I'd like to talk about some specifics on the heat and the, the cooling strategies and stuff, but it looked like you moved through the field, you know, really beautifully. Um, you obviously ran conservatively at the start. Did you have a formula for how much slow you'd start based on the temperature and humidity? Yeah, we didn't do any sort of calculations on that, but I did a workout on the Wednesday um, and I did it sort of maybe at 9am or something to just to get a feel for what the conditions were going to be like on race morning. And it, I tried to run at a pace that I felt was going to be roughly what my marathon pace would be because we knew that it wasn't going to be anything like the paces we'd been running in training. So that was actually, yeah, that actually worked out perfectly because I said to Julian after that session, I think it's going to be somewhere between 335s and 340s, so um, sort of 10 or so seconds slower than what we'd been doing. And in the end, I think I did run around 335. So it was, um, yeah, it was right around the mark. And just you could feel after a few minutes running at a pace any quicker than that, it just started to feel uh, unsustainable. So, yeah, we were were basically guessing. But I think, um, yeah, having done all all the training in the lead up and sort of getting that feel for what marathon effort is like, I think that sort of allowed us to then be able to get a feel for what that might be in the heat. We'll call it an educated guess then. <laughs> it was it was a full-blown guess to be honest. I didn't know <laughs> it was going to be like that at all, but yeah, it ended up okay. Did you um did you chat to Lisa uh pre-race and did you guys plan to run it run part of it together or um yeah I well I spoke to Lisa before the race and even in the week or so leading in because she's actually got a lot of experience in hot marathons and we didn't plan on running together I think you know we no one really talks about the specifics of their race plan uh, as such but I knew that she wanted to go out fairly conservatively and and I knew that with the experience that she's got in hot marathons that she would um, be going out at a fairly sensible pace and it, it actually just happened to be that we ended up finding ourselves in the same pack early on. And then we we actually drifted apart and came back together a few times throughout the race. But, yeah, we we essentially ran a very similar pace the whole way and a very similar race strategy. Um, so, yeah, that was just kind of a fluke, I guess. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, look, I, I get uh, pretty emotional at the start of any race. I can get emotional in a local Cronulla Park run with 15 other people there. <laughs> How on earth do you check your emotion and not take off like crazy in a big city marathon or the Olympics? Yeah, it's. I think um, the heat was enough to give me enough fear to not do that. So, like, I, I, I don't know that I'm a particularly emotional person leading into races normally, but I definitely, every marathon that I've done has been a positive split. So I've run too fast at the start, basically. Um, but this one, I was very determined not to do that. And I think probably just a little fearful of, 
of what might happen if I did that and the the potential to DNF in those conditions was was pretty scary for me. I really, really didn't want to do that. So um, I think it wasn't actually that hard to hold myself back and and the pace went out quite slow. So even the leaders early on were running around 340s or high 330s, which, yeah, made it easy to just sit on the back of that and relax into it. And I just had to keep telling myself early on, this feels really good, but, yeah, that's exactly what you want. If it, if it feels slow, go slower. Like don't, yeah, just don't uh, don't get too excited because you'll pay for it later. I've heard that so many times. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to go and do a marathon in the heat. That'll be enough to scare yeah, you into yeah, that'll it. Yeah, that'll do it. I want, I want to know what it's like finishing a race like this when you know you've got millions and millions of people watching and cameras right on top of you. Like, I'll finish a, a repeat at the track and I'll be spitting and almost vomiting and just looking absolutely disgraceful. Does that ever cross your mind when you come across the finish line? Oh, shit, I better pull it together because there's a bunch of cameras there. Uh, I don't know if you saw what I did at the end of the race, but <laughs> I was throwing up on the side yeah, and yeah. hoping that I was not in the camera view, which I apparently was, but um yeah, I I think by that stage I was so tired and so hot that I wasn't actually thinking about that at all. Um, and, yeah, there were cameras around, but it was probably hard to get a real sense of just how many people were watching. And, um, I mean, I, I knew that all of my friends and family back home were watching and that was that was a really nice thing to think about in the last 10K or so. But, yeah, I think by the end of a marathon, usually my brain's not working properly and I, I can't think of uh, trying to look good when I cross the line because I certainly never look good when I'm crossing the finish line of a marathon. No one does. No one does. No. <laughs> Except Kip Choge. I don't know if you guys saw his finish, but yeah. he looked amazing. Yeah. yeah, he looks pretty comfortable. It's bizarre. <laughs> but, yeah, the, after the first men, like him and then the chase pack in the men's marathon, every single person after that looked absolutely absolutely terrible so it was it was actually quite funny watching it the next day and just seeing the state that people were in at the end oh, that, i think they ran out of wheelchairs it was carnage yeah crazy so do you know why they um they didn't start the men's race an hour earlier yeah so the next day it was uh not as hot and it was overcast so they decided we just assumed that they would still move it but I think they looked at the conditions and decided that they didn't need to so they left it at 7 a.m okay yeah and it was quite a bit cooler but they still had when later in the race the sun came out in patches and so I think they still um, it still got really hot sort of for the last hour or so for the men's but yeah I think the cloud cover sort of helped keep the temperature on the roads down a bit mm. You guys were obviously just tougher than them, not as many DNFs. I did say that to Julian. I said, because uh, <laughs> we just we were discussing that, the number of DNFs in the men's, and they just went out so much harder, I think, than the women's race. And I said uh, to him that it's because the girls are just smarter and tougher. So Spot that, on. Was, Spot that on. was why. We're a bunch <laughs> of idiots. We really are. I think what? of the condition. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I think it was a bit deceiving because it was that bit cooler. I think they all got excited and thought, oh, yeah, maybe we can still run fast here. And that was, yeah, it, it really was later in the race where it came back to bite everyone. 
The phrase keep it in your pants comes to mind, I reckon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Speaking of uh, Julian, your coach, I've got to listen to a question from him. Uh, he said, when I first met you, you would turn up every weekend, hung over at the shop and have sleeps out the back of the store. <laughs> what was your running ambition back then? Uh, <laughs> that is a gross exaggeration. I never slept on the job. Um, but, yeah, I think we, we must have worked on Sundays together. So there were probably a few uh, Sundays where I wasn't quite fresh for work. Um, yeah, my running ambition at that stage was, yeah, it was it was pretty minimal, to be honest. I think uh, working at that store and starting work with Julian was a very good thing for me because he used to force me to go out and run with him after work. And he was a little injured at the time, so he wasn't particularly fit either. And we used to go and jog around Geelong when we finished work. But um, yeah, I think I still loved running and I still did sort of cross country and things like that for Geelong. And I think that was when I started running a few half marathons. So it, there was some level of ambition there. It was probably uh, quite low and it, it took a couple of years from there before it really took off. Um, but yeah, I, I always deep down thought I wanted to have a bit of a go at running and take it a little more seriously. I just yeah, it took me it took me a bit of time to get to that point. Bit of time to get off the beers. Yeah, there you go. I've got, I've got a beer related <laughs> question already. I, I love the photo of you marathoners sitting on the ground with a can of Kieran in your hands. How important was this in your post race recovery? <laughs> yeah, that was. Well, we hadn't. I don't think I'd had a drink for. Oh, I don't know how long leading into the race, but quite a long time. Um, and. Yeah, so it, it was pretty nice. The day after our race, we we had a couple of beers, but we had to get up at 3.30 the next morning to go and help the boys on the drink stations. So we didn't really do that much the night after our race. And then we flew back to the village on the Sunday. So that was the Sunday night in the Australian allotment at the village, which was really fun. It was the last night of the Olympics. Um, I think everybody was, yeah, was finished their events and and relaxing and yeah that was that was fun they they went down pretty well that night those <laughs> cold kieran cans <laughs> I, I think i said to sinead this is like it's like drinking water were you uh were you starstruck by anyone particularly in the athletes village uh it was pretty cool seeing all the boomers in the Australian allotment so they just won their bronze medal the night before and yeah they, they were having heaps of fun so that was that was pretty cool to be a part of that because for the first few days we were in Sapporo so we were actually uh, I think it's like 900 kilometers north of Tokyo so we were well away just in the marathon race walking hub um, but in there I guess we saw Kipchoge and Bridget Kozgai and yeah a lot of the the really famous marathoners which was cool to be in the same hotel as them um but then yeah it was fun getting back to the village and seeing like there's a there was a lot of athletes I didn't recognize in there but even walking around the dining hall and then there was like you know six foot eight guys from Serbia or whatever and yeah it was pretty overwhelming just being around that many athletes from all different sports that yeah, even if you don't know who they are, you know, like, oh, these these people are sort of the best in the world at their 
their given sport and yeah looking around trying to pick what what event people did and stuff was was quite fun unreal the javelin is massive dudes massive dudes <laughs> well i'll take you back to your training camps i guess cans i think sunshine coast potentially leading leading in um how much harder does it feel to you to complete, say, an 8 by one k rep in those sorts of conditions? Yeah, so uh, in the heat, do you mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, the Sunshine Coast wasn't too hot. So I think initially coming from Victoria, everything was probably a little slower, but the, the temperature was really only in the low 20s when we were there. So it didn't feel particularly different I wouldn't say we had a couple of sessions where it was quite humid uh, but aside from that it wasn't it wasn't making much of a difference to pace or feel uh, it was more once we got to Cairns yeah there definitely you had to allow for that and I think Julian got a bit of a shock when he got to Cairns because looking at the temperature it does didn't look particularly bad but it's quite a different sort of heat to what you get in southeast Queensland so uh, we had to make adjustments on paces for for all of the workouts particularly probably in the first week or so that I was there and then I kind of adapted a little and um, some of the shorter reps like that I could do close to the pace that I would do at home so k reps might have been within a couple of seconds of what what I would do normally anyway but yeah, the longer the workout, the more effects it had, I think. So some of my big marathon workouts, I really had to adjust. And I had one in particular where I went too hard early and really blew up quite badly. And yeah, we had to uh, kind of shorten the workout so that I could get through it. So it was a good learning experience, I guess, going into the Olympics and just knowing how much of an impact the heat was going to have and and learning to adjust my paces and uh, expectations based on that yeah it's valuable stuff yeah they say um you learn every you learn something from every event or every race what what do you think was the main takeaway from your marathon i uh, i learned that running a negative split is a much uh more enjoyable less painful to run way to run a marathon so <laughs> i've never got to 30ks feeling good before and yeah, as much as it was testing of my patience to hold back, it was actually, it makes for a very enjoyable race when you run it that way. And then you still feel good enough at 30K that you can start to increase the pace and pick people off in front of you. Um, it got pretty hard again in the last couple of Ks. I think I might've gone a bit hard a bit early once I got over the 30K mark. But yeah, that the biggest thing I've learned from that is that uh, my next marathon, I'm going to try a similar approach. Unreal. Do, Which Julian's about... been telling me for years, the negative split's the way to go, and I sort of, yeah, half believed him until now. He's a bit of a specialist at it, though, isn't he? Yeah, he's good. Yeah. Well, with, um, I guess, talking about the, the heat stuff, we having to drop your, your weekly volume based on the stress that was putting on your body? Uh, I didn't. I didn't drop my weekly volume. I actually ran higher mileage than I've run before, but we were probably a little conservative with that just because of the, like you said, the extra stress from the heat and also some of the extra stuff that I was doing like saunas and um, rugged up runs and things like that. But because I was away from home and I wasn't working or doing anything else, 
that probably counteracted that a little and I, I actually felt like I could handle a lot more mileage than I had done in the past even with the heat stress mm. so yeah I think it was good to to do that and going forwards I think we know that I can probably handle a little more um and just yeah that the impact that not working and not having other things going on in your life it it really allows for a much more recovery time and less uh stress and I guess mental energy expenditure so it was yeah it was actually the most mileage I've ever done leading into a marathon yeah, wow, that's that's amazing. I, I, I've also heard you talk about working with Julian on your decision-making processes while under that heat stress. Can you sort of fill the listeners in on what sort of decisions you'd be making on race day and how the heat might affect that? Yeah, so uh, I guess during the race, trying to recognise signs of heat stress a little earlier and and making a decision whether it be to drop off the back of a pack if they're going too fast or or pull back five to ten seconds per k to try and get things back into a comfortable rhythm. I think the the effects of running even a few seconds too fast in a hot marathon are exponential compared to a cold marathon. It's it's a lot harder to come back from that. And we probably learned in some of those hot sessions that we did in Cairns that if I were to um, yeah, if I actually reined things back earlier enough, I could recover and get back into that rhythm. But if I let it go on for too long, then it was impossible to come back from. So in the race, he was pretty, pretty good with me. Like before the race, he basically said, you know, you know what to do, make the right decisions on the day. I trust you, whatever you think um, is the right way to go about it, then go for it. So yeah, that, that was good. And, and I think I basically executed the plan that we had in place anyway. And there were a couple of times throughout the race where I had to let a pack go because I thought they were just going a little too fast for what I should be doing at that stage. So I think around the 10 K mark, um, I was running with a group and yeah, they sort of started dropping down below three thirties and I knew that it was a bit too early for that for me. So I, I let them go and then yeah, or like I think I actually ended up catching most of them again later on. So, yeah, nice just making feeling. decisions on the fly. Mm. Do you use, does, does heart rate become more of a, a gauge in, in hotter conditions for you? Yeah, we use heart rate a lot in this build-up, um, particularly not in the race itself. And I tried to actually get rid of it in a couple of runs leading into the race. I was a bit sick of looking at my heart rate and I just wanted to uh, run to feel but in the months leading into it we I wore my heart rate strap on every run um, we were particularly careful on the rugged up runs so we were working with Sam Tebeck from South Australia for the heat acclimatization stuff and he wanted me to keep my heart rate below a certain uh, level for the runs where I was rugged up which meant sometimes I was running five minute k's or close to five minute k's just to keep it down because it would spike really quickly. Um, we did a lot of heart rate stuff for recovery runs as well, which, yeah, it was it was really good. Um, like Jules and I had a discussion the other day and I think when I run at home because I run over hills a lot more, I think I actually spend a lot more time with a slightly higher heart rate and some days I think it's nice to, to take that off or to not worry about it and have a bit of a licence to, to run a little harder even on an easy run day. But, um, yeah, keeping the day's recovery days post sessions 
uh, to a to a low heart rate, I think is was really important and helpful, and probably was part of the reason why we were able to do that increased mileage with the added heat stress because we were so diligent with keeping an eye on heart rate. Mm, it's interesting. What what about the idea of uh, cooling your body down? I've heard you talk about ice baths and ice vests and slushies and those sorts of things. How did your body feel on the start line for Tokyo? Yeah, so I was really cold on the start line. I had goosebumps and I was shivering. Um, so we did a pre-cooling protocol, which, yeah, was like, I think that was one of the best things we did. And uh, we did some hyperhydration practice as well in the lead-in. So there's a couple of different methods. You can use a glycerol one or a salt one. The glycerol is really effective at uh, retaining fluid, but it can upset people's stomachs a little bit. So we went with a salt one, which basically just means you hold on to more water and you drink like a salt water solution about three hours before the race. So we did that and then we got in an ice bath maybe uh, maybe 45 minutes to an hour before the race for about 25 minutes, so up to our necks. Wow. We got out of the ice bath, put an ice vest on and drank it. Powerade slushy. Um, so actually, often when apparently the idea is when you get out of the ice bath, your body stops trying to warm up, and that's when you actually your core temperature drops. So you do you feel really cold and shivery when you get out. But um, we kept them on and kept our slushies with us all the way through the call room until we were out on the start line. And the three of us Aussie girls got to the start line. Yeah, probably looking the coldest of everyone. Um, but, yeah, it makes such a huge difference because it delays the onset of heat stress. So essentially what we worked out in training was it would take 20 minutes or so to even feel remotely warm, which um, if that's 20 minutes less of being hot at the end of the race, that can be really valuable. You're spending a lot less time in that, I guess, heat stress um, mode. So, yeah, that was that was really good. Mm. What were with the other countries, did they have a similar strategy? What, what, do you know what other people were doing? Yes. So it, it was a little tricky to see because we had, everybody had a tent that was fairly private. So we don't know what a lot of the other countries were doing. I know the Canadians are really big on pre-cooling and the Dutch girls in our race, they were in an ice bath beforehand. Most of the countries seem to have some sort of an ice vest on, but yeah, some of the some of the other countries they were warming up in tracksuits and um yeah didn't look to be doing any sort of pre-cooling perhaps other than pouring cold water on their heads before the race and during the race but yeah I think that was something that uh like our coaching staff I guess they were pretty confident that we were going to be taking that the most seriously of of everyone and that that would be really beneficial and I think it was yeah, so, I mean, you're, you're coming in within sort of seven minutes of your PB. Cosguy, for example, is something like 14 minutes off her PB. You've got to have been doing something right there. Yeah, and I think typically the East African runners are pretty good in the heat anyway. But I think, um, yeah, we're certainly lucky with the team that we had and the support staff that were there to help us do that. Yeah, we, we probably had a few more resources on offer than some of the other countries. Oh, wow. It's fantastic. Great to have that team yeah, working well together. It's good. I've got a um, listener question coming from Evie Hadfield regarding the cooling strategy. 
She wants to know, were you listening to the soundtrack from Disney's Frozen the entire time you were in the ice bath? <laughs> no. <laughs> we did ask, actually, for some music, and the, the doctor who was there with our team, he put one of his Spotify playlists on, <laughs> which was hilarious. It was like acoustic country or something and so I think in the in the end that got canned and somebody else put their phone on but now frozen would have been good um yeah I think at that point we were probably also focused on the race that there wasn't much awareness of anything that was happening around us anyway and yeah we're all just sitting there trying to get as cold as possible so but I'll remember that for next time maybe (laughs) <laughs> when, when you started the uh, the ice ice bathing, not necessarily before the race, but um, you know, leading up to it, did it become a bit of a competition between you and friends to see who could stay in the longest? Well, I mostly did the ice baths on my own because my training schedule was a little different to the others. I was usually in there by myself. Uh, Julian's pretty like with the saunas and the ice bath, he likes to do everything to the extreme. So when he was there and I was in the ice bath, he was just loading it in with as much ice as he could to test me and see how much I could tolerate. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably a lot better with the ice than I am with the heat, the sauna stuff. So I found that I could sit in an ice bath pretty comfortably for 25 minutes or so. Whereas yeah, the sauna I found to be a real struggle. Um, so, yeah, definitely Jules loves a bit of competition. So in the sauna, he was always trying to outdo me there, which <laughs> he definitely was. But When, um, when yeah. are you using the sauna? What's the sauna used for? Just a acclimatization? Yeah, so we were doing it. We did a, a few different uh, types of sauna sessions. So we would either get in the sauna, get really hot, and then go out for a rugged up run. So go out and put on tights, tracksuit pants, long sleeve tops, jackets, beanies, gloves, and run whilst we were already hot. Um, or the other thing that we did was we'd do a run in the afternoon, say 8K or something, and then get in the sauna for 20, 25 minutes straight after the run. So getting into the sauna when you're already hot and just trying to yeah stay in there for a little longer. So it depended. We didn't do it every day either. You have to be a bit careful with how often you do it and um you almost do a heavy block where you do a couple of weeks of most days doing some form of heat and then you do a maintenance phase where you just do it two or three times a week to try and maintain without kind of cooking yourself yeah you're starting to sound like a rocky montage here it's unreal (laughs) (laughs) it was a bit like that it was actually in the end it was good that it was so hot for the race because I thought oh, uh, we've done all this ridiculous stuff if it's if it's not even hot I'll be annoyed so yeah <laughs> when you were doing the cooling stuff we actually testing like core body temperature and how far we able to bring it down in that respect yeah we didn't do any tests they did threaten us with the uh, rectal probes at one point it's the I first time we've had a rectal probe on this podcast, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you I a think, story. Um, it's not, not for here. Go on. Okay. <laughs> well, finally, like the race walkers, they're so advanced with all their heat stuff and pre-cooling stuff. So they, I think, actually do do a lot of that in their training. Um, and they're, they're very nonchalant about it. They don't 
they're much more mature than us and didn't seem to see the funny side of it. Uh, but yeah, at one stage they talked about trying to get us some of those for um, for uh, training to see what our core temperature was getting up to as well as down to. But yeah, that never eventuated. So I was pretty happy about that. Yeah, I, I would have been deleting those emails too. <laughs> There's got to be a joke in here somewhere about a race walker and a rectal thermometer. Like, yeah. when they're moving, they look like they've got a rectal thermometer in. Oh. It's, compulsory. it's compulsory that they wear them and report back in real time. Sorry to all they're the actually people. much better. Um, they're much better subjects for studies than the the marathon runners are. I think they're yeah, they just go with it and they do everything that they can to to get the best results in the heat stuff. So, yeah, I think the, the uh, scientists much prefer working with the race walkers and the marathon runners because we all thought that the rectal thermometers was a hilarious idea. But And you were right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing we just guess. <laughs> we just say, oh, yeah, we're cold now or, oh, yeah, we've overheated a bit. Yeah. <laughs> That'll do. Yeah, give or take a degree. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, was, I was listening to a, uh, a podcast with you, I think it's 2017 pre-Berlin Marathon with Brady. Um, you were talking about a word to define you as balance. And, and I want to know what's changed in the past four years to make you so very focused compared to that podcast. Probably the balance has changed and I'm no longer balanced. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I... I think I used to be, yeah, probably too balanced in life, I'd say. Like I, and that was probably why it took me so long to uh, improve my running because I, you know, I had, I worked a lot and I socialized a lot and I had other things happening. I played netball. I'd probably stopped playing netball by that point, but I had, I did uh, everything almost evenly in life, I'd say. And in the last, four or five years I think that's definitely changed and I don't know if that's a good thing or not but it probably had to change to get better at running because I don't really think that you can do everything at your best um, when you do have so many things on your plate so for me it was about yeah basically running's become my primary focus and I don't miss training for social things now I don't skip runs I everything sort of revolves around that and I still you know see my friends and go out for dinner and stuff but that that never goes in place of running and it might be a matter of I get there late because I'm coming from training or whatever um so yeah I think the balance has certainly changed but I, I think I'm happy doing it this way and probably happier even than I was then so I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing but it's certainly not what people <laughs> tell you to try and achieve in life. They usually say that balance is good, but yeah. No, well, I'm sure, you know, most of the, the top athletes in the world, they talk about sacrifice and being selfish and those sort of things. So I think that's that takes a priority, doesn't it? The sport just has to come first. Yeah, I think so. And, and you do have to be a little bit well, very selfish in a lot of ways um, to do that. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't, it hasn't affected me. I feel probably a little sorry for people like my husband, Joe, who his life almost has to revolve around my running too, which he's probably lost a bit of his own balance just in um, 
yeah, the way that our lifestyle has changed. But yeah, it's, I mean, I don't really think of it as a sacrifice because I've sort of chosen to shift that balance in the way that I have and, and I really enjoy it. So yeah. And you can socialize at training and <laughs> oh, that's, that's my new social life. And, my and now you're an Olympic marathoner, so it's worked beautifully well. Um, do, do you think hitting that, I guess, more serious aspect of your training later in, in life has helped in terms of consistency of training and injury prevention, those sorts of things? Yeah, I think so. Um, for me, it was such a gradual build in mileage. Like I was essentially building mileage from probably 20K a week to 160K a week over 10 years. So everything happened gradually as I sort of started to take things more seriously and and started to shift that balance to a degree. So I think that from an injury prevention perspective, that's been very uh, beneficial. And even coming from a background of playing other sports, I think has been also really helpful in that regard. I was probably came into it uh, relatively strong and I had, I'd played court sports my whole life. So I think that really helps with bone strength and um, strength in all your stabilizing muscles and things like that. So it's probably now's the danger time when I've been running for so long that uh, a lot of those things have changed that I need to, yeah, be careful with injuries. And particularly the amount of mileage I run now is obviously much higher risk than when I was running 40 or 50k a week but yeah what, what, okay what, what sort of weekly mileage are you averaging so i got during the marathon block leading into um sapporo i had quite a few weeks over 160ks which that's big for me um i would have down weeks in between which the down weeks were actually quite low because i did the Launceston 10k race early in the block and then I was supposed to be doing Gold Coast half sort of later in the block so I did drop things right down for those two weeks um so I'm not sure what my average was in the end but yeah my up weeks were were sort of high 150s to high 160s which was was really good but I even yeah I, I think I've got a little bit of room to move there and I hope that over the next couple of years I can gradually increase that even a little more because a lot of the top marathoners are sort of running, yeah, a little more than that. Um, but I do think, yeah, I don't think you need to be running that sort of mileage to to run a good marathon. It's just um, it definitely helps if your body can handle it. Hmm. I've actually got another listener question in from the Big Moose. Yeah, he, uh, he reached out as well. So he wants to know what are some of the silliest things you did as a runner before you transitioned to the new professional phase of your career? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I used to be a bit of a nightmare to coach, I think. So I know one in particular that he's referring to. I, um, if I had something on Saturday night, say, then I would try and combine my runs so that I didn't have to run on Sunday. And one day I was training for, this might've been my first marathon, I reckon. And I had like a 34K run or something to do on Sunday. And I had a race on Saturday in Ballarat. There was a 15K road race. And I decided that I'd just run the 15K and then do the extra 19K or whatever I had to get to 34 on the Saturday. So I didn't have to do my long run on Sunday. And um, yeah, I I towed it, I... I can't remember what happened. I think I had to walk because I was so 
depleted from the race and I just yeah we got like 7k out of Ballarat or something and I'd roped one of the other guys into doing it with me (laughs) and then um yeah I sort of shuffled home but yeah there were a few things like that that I used to do in my early days that I knew as well that they weren't right but um yeah I used to just go rogue from the program a fair bit and Julian would have to give me a lecture and there was another thing that he might be talking about I wanted to do Nagoya marathon and then I wanted to go and do the um the speed project relay from LA to Vegas it was only a few weeks after the marathon and then I wanted to race a 10k in the US to try and qualify for world champs and yeah I got a bit of a lecture about that too um from both Julian and Nick who's my manager about doing stupid things like relays where you have to run 100k's when I'm (laughs) trying to yeah qualify for the Olympics so um yeah I think I've nowadays I'm pretty sensible and I just stick to the program but I used to go rogue a bit back in the early days I think you could have gone more rogue than that that's for sure Yeah. (laughs) yeah it wasn't too bad Julian just used to say that, yeah. Did, um, yeah, did, I don't know. <laughs> did Julian, Julian look at your surname or your maiden name, O'Kane, and, and think that he just might have someone to drink whiskey with? Is this why he took you on in the first place? <laughs> yeah, I don't know actually why he agreed to coach me. Um, yeah, I was, he, he was actually, he used to have a fair bit of fun himself, Jules, so he throws me under the bus with this stuff, but I was much more tame than he was. <laughs> Here's, a, here's an opportunity. I've got a, a listener question here, and it's from Dennis Rodman. I'm not sure if it's the actual Dennis Rodman. But, <laughs> but Dennis asks, do you know why they call Julian the moose? Uh, yes, I do, but <laughs> I can't say it on the podcast. Sure you can. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely can't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he would... Uh, he would we wouldn't be friends anymore if I told that story Fair enough (laughs) we'll talk we'll talk off air (laughs) do you you guys don't know I'm guessing uh maybe (laughs) I just wanted somebody else to say it Uh, as much as I'd love to do that uh, (laughs) get you off the hook (laughs) we'll move along I've got one coming in from Sean Street he wants to know what tips have you got when coaching injured athletes and managing their psychology? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm the best person to ask that to. Um, it's it's pretty tricky when, especially when the people that you coach get injured, There's you always feel responsible yourself. And I think the, the biggest thing that as coaches we need to do is get as much feedback from our athletes as we can to try and stop that from happening because sometimes people will get a sore foot or something and they won't tell you for a few days and they'll try and run through it. And if you're not on to getting feedback from your athletes regularly, then that can be the kind of injury that might have turned from something that just needed a little bit of program modification or one or two days off into something a lot more serious. So, yeah, I think as an athlete, give your coach as much feedback as you can. And if you feel any sort of soreness anywhere, make sure you tell them because it might just be that you've got a sore calf and you're meant to do hill reps the next day, which could be the worst thing that you 
could be doing and they all they can do is adjust that session for you to be more suitable so um and then from a coaching perspective yeah obviously talking to your athletes as far as the psychology of it um yeah it's it's pretty tricky I think the longer the injury goes on the harder it is but I'll try and give my athletes some cross-training stuff if that's possible and um yeah I mean sometimes people just need a break for their uh not just from an injury perspective but they, they might have just been going for too long and that forced rest is actually something that can be helpful for them but um yeah mo- most injured athletes are pretty unhappy I think we all know when you love running that there's nothing worse than not being able to run because you're injured so trying to give them other things that they can focus on in the meantime and just trying to reassure them that yeah it will get better and send them the right way as far as people that can manage it so whether that's sending them to a health practitioner to look after them or you know encouraging them to go and see a sports doc or a sports psychologist or whatever they can but yeah our our role as coach when people are injured can be a little tricky you sort of have to to change your approach a bit and go from yeah writing a running program to being there in a supportive manner and and yeah giving them all the uh referral i guess that they need mm. yeah that's good that's good have you managed to keep all your all your athletes sort of fairly motivated through all the covid lockdown stuff have they been okay yeah surprisingly most have actually i think a lot of people have enjoyed just having something to follow as far as yeah a, a program with something each day that's written there that they can just go out and do and it makes them feel better um we were a little surprised about that we probably thought at the start that a lot of athletes would just totally lose interest in running without the racing opportunities and certainly as time's gone on and we've got runners that have been through you know three marathons that they've trained for have been cancelled and I think probably yeah doing a marathon block and then having your race taken away from you at the last minute is is pretty hard mentally and I think people have definitely struggled with that um so we've just tried to make running as fun as possible try and give them workouts that they enjoy we've done a few time trials and things like that but I think that was probably good in the early days and then I think now people are getting a bit over that um so yeah just just trying to uh I guess you want people going into a a training block assuming that their race is going ahead and telling themselves that that's going to happen but sometimes yeah with the uncertainty we need to be really adaptable and um if if races get cancelled then you just need to go back to making it fun and the big thing that I learned probably early on was because people weren't racing people weren't getting that downtime that they would normally get after a goal race so you know we do a marathon and then we normally have a week off and then a really slow rebuild over three or four weeks and people weren't getting that and I think we sometimes let people go on a little long and then they ended up getting injured or something just because they weren't getting the the downtime that they normally would so we're trying to make sure that all our athletes every you know four to six months have a week off or you know some really light weeks in there just to to keep them healthy above all and to and to get them motivated again because there's nothing like a week off to get you raring to run again mm. as i'm learning right now <laughs> <laughs> that's right what, what about uh i guess in terms of you being in tokyo and 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 
doing all this stuff personally, are you still writing programs when you're in the, the athlete's village, for example? What, what's going on there? Yeah, so um, coaching-wise, I did do all my programs for that week, but I tried to – I did some – I think the ones that I had that were due that week, I did them the week before uh, just so that the few days leading into the race I could just focus on that. And I sort of said to my athletes, like, you know, up until a few days before the race, I'm here for whatever questions and stuff you have, but then I'm probably going to go offline for a few days. And Jules was really good. He, if anybody needed anything, um, he was just the person that they would email and ask questions and things like that. And then we had one of our other coaches, Narelle, took over answering all the emails and doing the admin stuff that I normally do. So, yeah, like coaching is is a like it's a job that you are sort of doing at all times because, you know, you'll get someone emailing you late at night with a question about their workout the next day. And, and normally that's totally fine. But, um, yeah, in race week I did want to just have a few days where I switched off from that. But it's pretty, yeah, it's all online stuff, so it's, it's actually pretty manageable. And most of my athletes were really, really good and I think they tried not to um, bother me too much in the week or so leading in which That's was very thoughtful. Nice and understanding. In, in terms of you being a coach yourself, but being coached by Julian, how much of his stuff is just straight prescription to you? Are you collaborating back and forth there or you're just going to do what he tells you to do? Yeah, so probably as time's gone on, I think we collaborate a little more. I think in the early days, he, yeah, basically he just wrote it down and I did it. And he, I mean, Julian is so knowledgeable and really our whole coaching philosophy is based around his coaching philosophy that he has uh, developed over many years of reading, coaching, um, like as you guys know, he's a very intelligent guy. And I think, yeah, probably as time's gone on, he's included me a little more in my programming and we'll discuss it more and I might have more of an input, we'll debate things I'm a fairly uh like I'm not shy about telling him what I think about workouts or if I think you know that's not going to work for whatever reason um so he's always open for that as well which is good I think he he likes it when he likes to be to have to justify why we're doing certain things and and he always can so um yeah but I mean ultimately he's still the mastermind behind all my training and I basically just do what he says and sometimes mastermind's a good word. I like it. It sounds like he's a stroke and a cat at home somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> he is. <laughs> I've got, um, speaking of speaking of the moose again, I've got a listen to question coming from the Easter Bunny. It must be some sort of alias. I've often heard Julian Spence described as a bit of a hard man. Would you liken him to a red tulip mini egg, i.e., hard all the way through, or a Cadbury cream egg, hard on the outside but a big softy on the inside? Yeah, definitely Cadbury cream egg. So he has a hard exterior and Julian is, uh, yeah, he he's definitely got a soft side that I don't know that many people get to see. And with his, um, like with his friends and his family, uh, he's, he's definitely, I don't know, he's a very loyal friend and he would, do anything for the people that are really close to him and in his inner circle. And um, yeah, he just, he's also, you know, got, 
got a strong personality and strong opinions, but um, yeah, there's probably a softer side to him that that not many people see. But every every now and then it probably comes out a bit on the podcast. But um, yeah, Cadbury cream egg for sure. <laughs> More so after a couple of whiskeys, I'm sure as well. Um, <laughs> I've got one last uh, one last listener question. This is coming from the Ponds Institute. I noticed that you had significant difficulties keeping your hair in shape following the 2020 London Marathon. What strategies did you put in place to avert the same disaster at the Tokyo Olympics? <laughs> I don't know what that is about. Is that because I had a hat? In Oh, I know, because my hair got all knotted in the marathon. Is that what they're talking about? I think about? so. It's coming from somewhere else. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, look, there's not much effort that goes into looking after my hair, to be honest, and anybody that knows me will know that. Um, yeah, I, I had to spend a couple of hours brushing the knots out of my hair after London with with all the rain that we had that day. But, uh, yeah, I think the, the best strategy for me is just put your hair up in a bun as tight as you can and <laughs> deal with it time. later. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty much what I have to do every day. <laughs> Unreal. All right. Well, I'm interested to know what your plan is after you get out of quarantine. What's what are you what are you working towards? Yeah. So leading into the Olympics, I basically hadn't thought about anything that was happening for a second afterwards. So um, I don't have any race plans at the moment. I I think the two weeks it'll be probably two and a half weeks of no running, which uh, that will take me a little while to get back from. I don't get fit quickly like some lucky people do. It takes me quite a long time. So, yeah, I'll probably just get back into training, uh, try and string a couple of months together and then look at doing some races. So that might be some shorter stuff over summer, some 5Ks, 10Ks, maybe a half marathon if if they're happening. Um, and then I'll look at doing a marathon probably early next year. But yeah, it's, I don't know how many hotel quarantines I can do. So it, if I do another race overseas, I'm, I don't know whether I'll wait until things are a little different when we come back or whether I'll forget about hotel quarantine and be happy to do it again by early next year. We'll, we'll see. But yeah, I, I want to go and do a cold, flat, fast race next. Yeah, I'm sure. Sounds most uh, painful. That's for sure. Mm. What um so you get back to Torquay? What's what's your favourite run down there? Matt and I were lucky enough to do the Surf Coast Century a couple of years ago, so I've seen a little bit of it. What's uh oh, what's, cool. what's your favourite? So, uh yeah, so I live in Aries, which is about twenty minutes down the coast. And you guys, if you did the Surf Coast Century, you would have run sort of out the back of Aries yeah. on some of the trails there. So my favourite run is probably the Currawong Falls Loop, which is about 10 or 11 Ks. Um, it's called Currawong Falls, which is a bit deceiving because there's a waterfall that runs about once a year when we get heaps of rain. But most of the time there's a trickle there. But, yeah, it's just a beautiful loop that sort of goes through the rainforest in the Otway National Park and it starts about 2.5K from my house. So, yeah, that's, that's the one I'm looking forward to most when I get home. But there's so many good spots to run we've got beautiful gravel roads out the back of all the Aries Anglesey and Torquay and then we've got um the coast track which you guys would have run on in the surf coast entry as well so the surf coast walk goes the whole way along the coast and 
yeah, they're all pretty beautiful. So I'm excited to get back there. Unreal. We'll keep on uh, visualising those amazing scenes and good luck with the next week of uh, quarantine. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks very much for giving up your time and uh, we're excited to watch what the future holds for you. Thanks. No worries at all. Okay. Take care. Thanks, Ellie. 